The Letter, written and directed by Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Episode 2. Dear Dad, it was only at the police station, staring at the posters I'd taken in to officially report you missing 11 and a half years ago, that I'd finally realised how similar we looked. I remember that for a few moments, as I waited for the sergeant to see me, my focus shifted from finding you to disappointment that we really did look alike. My reshaped nose aside, your poster afforded me a glimpse of what would most likely be my own final face if, like you and Mum, I failed to make 60. I was finally seeing what everyone else saw. This was me 30 years from now. I wasn't happy. Maybe that was a reaction to the way people pointed out we looked alike. Oh, eres tu padre clavado. It discomforted me that I seemed to remind them of the most awkward and difficult man they knew. Physically, I didn't feel like I belonged to either of you. You towered over mum. The height difference, almost a foot, was cited by you in the divorce papers as something that had long embarrassed you, and it disconcerted me too. Even in this final picture, in which you were posing for your 18th consecutive and what turned out to be final annual night school photo card, you remain committed to the 1970s mullet. Having to go through the process of producing missing bouffanted posters, A3 size to ensure all the hair appeared in the picture, bewildered me as much as the fact you'd gone missing itself. I thought something like this only happened to other people, and I was in no real rush to confirm I'd lost a second parent in just two and a half years. The first few years after your passing were difficult and very quiet. Career-wise, I was surprisingly successful, racking up comedy commissions from major broadcasters and working as a football journalist. I settled down with someone that calmed me down and did their best to help me put the tragedies behind me. But then, in 2008, things began to unravel again. Your two surviving brothers, both older than you, died. The first one, the middle one, vanished in the spring just like you had six years earlier. It took almost as long to find out what happened to him as it did to you. Your surviving brother died broken-hearted six months later, leaving me as the last Ruiz on our side of the family. There was perhaps a tiny part of me that resented you, and probably still does for there never been a plan to get us out of the mess we were in at Mayflower. We just needed some place where we could close the door and know we had a proper home. Instead, we had to leave our bedsit to get to a bathroom shared with 13 other people. That was a difficult one to explain to friends when they came round. I would often produce pocket maps for them, depicting the layout of the building so they could find their way back to the bedsit every time they used the bathroom. We had no hot water in the bedsit itself. Rainwater came in through the kitchen roof regularly, and we all slept in one cold, heaterless room. But rather than get us out, you tried to get yourself out, though you never quite made it that far. In fact, you only made it as far as downstairs, an arrangement that no doubt had the neighbours ridiculing all of us once they became aware of it. I mean, moving downstairs seriously, Dad. Let me tell you, that was a hell of a conversation to have with any girls I brought home. Hey, do you want to meet my dad? He lives downstairs. You basically saddled me with looking after Mum and being responsible for the both of us getting out of there. Any dreams I had of going to university disappeared after that. I was trapped and I crumbled under that responsibility at such a young age. 
You, of course, tried to put your positive spin on it, selling it to us that it would be you, our own flesh and blood, sharing the communal bathroom facilities that from now on would only be shared by 12 people, rather than the 13 had a stranger moved in downstairs, and therefore the risk of picking up a disease in the bathroom would be minimised. People ask me all the time why we lived like that. I still don't understand myself. I'd go to English friends' houses and marvel at their big homes. It was like stepping into Narnia. They would close their doors and they didn't have to leave their place to go to the bathroom. There was central heating, hot water. There were rooms without beds that looked the same day and night, unlike our bedsit, which would assume a totally different look at night as beds were pulled out and made. My friends had their own rooms. I'd call round for them and their houses were so big, their parents wouldn't even know if their kids were in. I'd be thinking, your son is 12, how can you not know if they're not in? As a kid, you were obsessed with me becoming a goalkeeper. You trained me several nights a week after school on Clapham Common, my least favourite place and your favourite, for years. I didn't enjoy it, but I became quite brilliant at it because it was one of the few ways I knew how to please you. If there's one thing I'm confident of, it's that till I was 11 or 12, I doubt that there was a better keeper in my age group in the country. Onlookers would stop to watch me play in goal. I was that good. But there was always conflict, particularly when you caught me scrutinising my goal line on the common looking for dog mess. You were never more disappointed in me than at those what to you were pansy-like moments. Things changed just before my 12th birthday, when the dampness of Mayflower had impacted on my health to the extent I was diagnosed with mild asthma. You weren't happy. I felt like I'd let you down, a view you were not inclined to discourage. You signed me up for extensive clinical asthma trials at our local hospital, King's in Camberwell. Barely able to read English at the time, I'm not quite sure you knew what you'd agreed to. For a while, in the spring of 84, I felt like a lab rat. I seemed to be on some new medicine every other week that often left me breaking out in the most horrific reactive rashes overnight that had they taken place on the pages of some Marvel comic, would have left me imbued at least with some superpower. I think for you, the spring of 84 was the point at which your dreams for me died. It was easier for me than it was for you. But from then on, I'd never be able to offset any disappointment you felt in me by pulling off some spectacular save that no 11-year-old had the right to be pulling. I no longer had that way out. Your first heart attack in 2001 took us all aback. You were the fittest guy anyone knew back in the day when fit implied stamina rather than what it does today. It happened in Sainsbury's in Clapham. It was the worst pain you'd ever experienced, you said. In little doubt as to what had happened, you went straight to the doctors, as you tended to do every other week, with your first genuine ailment in some years. They rushed you to Guy's Hospital, where they carried out a stent insertion procedure. You, though, were more concerned with the uneven state your chest hair had been left in after the nurse had shaved you ahead of the procedure. One side of your rug was now higher than the other. You worried that if you went on holiday that summer, highly unlikely given you hadn't had a holiday since 1976, that you'd find yourself sunbathing on a beach with lopsided chest hair. And so you got me to seek out a porter you knew at the hospital, who, for £20, passed to him in a brown envelope and a pack of razors, came to find you after his shift finished and tidied up your chest hair. Twelve years on, let me tell you, that remains the strangest conversation I've ever had with anyone. As I watched the porter scale back your chest hair later that night, I worried that what had happened hadn't registered with you. I tried warning you. The conversation I didn't know how to have with Mum when I saw her decline, I had with you. I told you to take things easier, 
but to no avail. Within months, bored without the exercise you'd long been addicted to, you decided you'd start running again so you could compete in the following year's London Marathon. In your letter to your father, you write that the guilt and realisation that he was now responsible for you and your sibling after your mother's passing in a way he'd never previously been took its toll on him. It was a very sudden change. Like when my mum was getting sick at the end, they were subtle changes. They weren't subtle with my dad. He started smoking again after 20-odd years. His jet black hair quickly went almost entirely white. He suddenly looked his age. In spite of that physical decline, though, he steered you through a difficult time. He did. He came good for me. I don't know if those uh, two years at the end wiped the slate clean and, uh, you know, certainly I could never excuse his behaviour in the past. Towards your mother? Yeah, but I was indebted to him for his help at the end. It's something I think about every day. Is it important to you that you acknowledge that? It is, but I also think uh, I should have done more to show him I could cope, that I needed him less. You often criticise my laziness, but the laziness all went out the window in that fateful summer of 2002, or rather through the window in this case, as I stepped up my search for you in spectacular fashion to break into your even weirder-than-ours bedsit. Two separate rooms on two different levels. At least we didn't need to leave the bedsit to get to bed, unlike you. That was the first time I'd been back to Mayflower since the events of two years previously. Let in by a neighbour, I went in through the small communal toilet window two floors up, which by then you were only sharing with nine other people, uncomfortable that I was back in a place that brought back so many difficult memories. It was a discomfort not helped when I had my rear end forced through the small toilet window by a friend's dad, there along with my friend, to offer moral support. Once I squeezed through that first window, I clambered across to your window ledge and forced open your window, displaying a hitherto unknown agility that would have made you proud, a feat I regretted wasn't witnessed by more people. At no other time in my life would I have been capable of pulling this off, but it's amazing what you can do when you have to. Even as it all played out, if I'm honest, I felt I enjoyed it a little too much. The enormity of the situation made me momentarily feel alive again. But as I found myself standing on your window ledge, poised to prise open your window with a chisel, I prepared myself for the possibility that I might encounter a similar sight to that Friday afternoon when I found Mum. But you weren't there. Inside, your room was a mess. You were a hoarder. I was ashamed for my friend and his dad to see the state of your room. You had the habit of stripping your bed every morning and tipping over the mattress to air it. It looked like there'd been a break-in before the break-in had actually occurred. The signs inside weren't good. Only your keys were missing. Wherever you'd gone, you'd planned on coming back. It was only then that I was finally persuaded by my friend and his dad to officially report you missing. And so, the search began in earnest. Your refusal for us to have the landline before I turned 18 cost me lots of friendships. If we get the landline, people will just keep calling us and asking for favours, you said. I had to write letters to most of my friends after leaving school in order to try and hang on to those friendships. But 16-year-old boys in the 80s didn't want to get letters from other boys. They wanted to chase girls, sniff glue and dance like the Pasadenas. During that period, I estimate I lost about 30 friends. No one wrote me back. Mickey Boyd maintains to this day he never received my letters. My nose was another of your great obsessions. My rhinoplasties, much like Gaudi's La Sagrada Familia, a seemingly interminable work in progress, were never successful in enabling me to be able to breathe better. 
but at times seemed to be your only reason for staying with us. In 1986, you pushed me into having the first of these operations, threatening to leave Mum if I didn't go through with the surgery. Naturally, when Mum heard that, she encouraged me to refuse. I gave in, though. You got your way. I sacrificed my original nose to save your marriage. You were a typically easily slighted Spaniard, an eccentric capable of running multiple feuds at any one time, full of over-the-top expressive hand gestures. You were hard to live with, and later in life, you cut an increasingly ridiculous figure. You'd peel onions inside bread bags with holes cut into the side, whilst donning industrial goggles to stop yourself from crying. Your fridge looked like a Jean-Michel basket piece, with big English words written onto its doors in crayon as you continued your admirable 30-year battle to master the English language. You would paint long into the night on the makeshift easel you'd fixed onto our kitchen cupboard door, preventing it from ever shutting again, and collected torches and world clock radios like there was no tomorrow, for which I would often have to write out checks for. You taught me how to tuck my chin in when fighting. If I got attacked in our own road, you told me, Whatever you do, Danny, do not scream like a girl. We still have to live in Mayflower after you've been attacked and it could be months before we move. Even if the fight is going bad for you, you'll never be tempted to bite your opponent. You'll never know what disease they might be carrying. Eh? The wait in the clinic to find out if you've got hepatitis or AIDS, it will be worse than any beating you have taken. You would have to grow a beard to disguise any weight loss if you fall ill and you don't have the beard depth to pull that off. But beyond that, you didn't really teach me about being a real man. How to be responsible, stable, how to be a good dad, how to be employable, how to stay employed, how to love a woman, how to be a good partner. By the time I'd reached my late teens, you'd down tools, refusing to work for anyone, becoming embroiled instead in the types of hopeless, unwinnable battles that I would emulate in later years inevitable defeats that would stoke the fire in our bellies and help us feel alive. Your anxieties shaped me. They became my anxieties. Your battles with landlords and bosses became my battles. Your P45s became my P45s. You were obsessed with birds, avian and otherwise, keeping birds for almost a decade at home, despite my ornithophobia. Mainly finches and canaries. You'd find sparrows with broken legs on the street and bring them home, restoring them to full health and then crossbreeding them with the finches and canaries to create some bizarre new bird that ornithologists would probably tell you was impossible. It was like Dr Moreau's Island had come to SW9. From 1971 to 1991, your father recorded every single Eurovision Song Contest from the tube onto audio cassette. Now let me explain for our American listeners, the Eurovision is an annual song contest held by member countries of the European Broadcasting Union. Now tell me, was this normal even in the 70s? All I know is it was painful. We'd all have to stay quiet during every song. Something which, according to my notes, proved beyond you during the 1976 contest when you got slapped by your father for talking during the UK entry Brotherhood of Man's winning performance of Save Your Kisses for Me. And you never forgot that slap as you grew up, did you? No, and that uh, that troubled my dad. I see. I, uh, I heard him once ask our GP if it was possible that a four-year-old could remember such an incident. Okay. Now, in 1984, just months before the Bucks Fizz coach crash, yeah. your father started night school at your local college, staying there for 18 years until 2002. Yep. Now, that's an 18-year stretch. 
You write that in that time, he did every course the college had to offer until they ran out of subjects for him and they kicked him out. But he didn't take that lying down, did he? No, he didn't take it lying down, as you say. He uh, he successfully fought to be reinstated and, and simply began repeating courses he'd already taken. That is extraordinary. It is. Now, by the time you turn up at the same college in 1989, your father had already been there for five years. Now, Daniel, kids go to high school for five years. And he still had another 13 years left, all at the same college. We argued on the morning of Mum's funeral. You took issue with a white piping on my black coat, when you probably would have been on firmer ground taking me to task for the inappropriate go-faster-striped goatee I was sporting that day. In those first few terrible months after we lost Mum, we just kept fighting. But gradually we realised we needed each other. Much time was spent together, as you oversaw my faltering early attempts to build a new life. You'd come to my new place for coffee every Saturday, from where we would visit Mum's grave. There we'd talk and we'd sigh. It may well be we were the leading exponents of sighing in South London at that time. You would try to talk to me about Mum, thinking perhaps it would help me, and a lump would quickly form in my throat as I struggled with a pain that not long before had been unimaginable to me. They were not conversations I was ready to have. But that period was to take on a special significance, given that these would prove to be our last days together. You and Mum were together for 19 years of what was essentially a long separation punctuated by three trial marriages, 81, 83 and 87. They were horrible, unconvincing periods where you pretended to be right for each other and my sibling and I would wince with discomfort as this all unfolded. We were lost without the fighting. 87, mercifully, was the last of these trial marriages and resulted in a change to our sleeping arrangements. Mum took my lower bunk bed and I made the 0.58 second journey across to the marital bed, sharing it with you just as I was entering the final year of my GCSEs. And then you had the temerity to wonder why I failed my exams. Twice. That period also coincided with me, like many teenagers, taking up drinking and smoking. God knows what you made of that as I crawled into bed with you every night. This is where I was as house music took hold of the nation's youth. In bed with my dad. Your death predictions always unsettled me. You were SW9's very own Cassandra, discerning some hidden illness just from someone's features and then predicting to their faces that they didn't have long left. They were wild off the beam baseless predictions, always wrong and effectively ensured we never got invited anywhere. When I was just four years old, I remember you foreseeing that your own death was imminent, a prophecy that was 26 years out. In the late 80s, still very much alive, you forecasted mum's passing 11 years too early. That really affected me, and I remember my preparations for losing mum began in earnest that night. Even at her funeral, you made the point of reminding me of your prediction. We argued again as we sat at the front, me forcefully making the point that being 11 years out didn't even come into the prediction category. You were incapable of predicting anything. As well as soccer, you and your father shared a love of dermatology. That's right. He took a keen interest in medicine, which was uh, unsurprising given how often he went to the doctors. Now, your own interest in this field, I believe, was triggered by the discovery of a book your father had on diseases of the skin when you were just five years old. That's right. Uh, I was was really happier than when I had my original nose in that book. By the time I made my communion... I knew my warts from my corns. I knew that a seborrheic uh, keratosis looked far worse than it actually was. And 
I knew that it never turned into cancer. Indeed. You write that you and your father were captivated by skin growths and bumps and tags and thick, scaly, elevated lesions with pronounced skin lines, markings and birthmarks. And uh, especially any diseases of the skin characterized by uh, excessive secretion of sebum by the sebaceous glands and uh, its accumulation on the skin surface. Me and my my dad were all over that like a rash. (laughs) Okay. So you would discuss these skin afflictions in the marital bed? Sometimes. My uh, unerring ability to correctly identify skin growths and identify markings on strangers on the, on the rare occasions we went out would uh, always impress my dad. Now, in a way, I guess this unusual for one so young. Dermatology knowledge replaced the spectacular fingertip save as the easiest way for you to impress your father. I guess it did. I once lived with a girl whose dad had 52 skin tags under his armpits. I know because I'd count them every time we were at the beach, appalled and mesmerised in equal measure, wondering how on earth his wife stayed with him. It was this fascination with the landscape of his underarms that prolonged our relationship. His skin tags had a narrow base, which means theoretically they were something he could have removed himself. The NHS website tells you how. Tie off the base of the skin tag with dental floss or cotton to cut off its blood supply and make it drop off, or cut it off with fine sterile scissors. Alternatively, you have the option of cryotherapy. Here's the NHS website again. Cryotherapy is where liquid nitrogen is sprayed onto your wart to freeze and destroy the affected skin cells. After treatment, a sore blister will form, followed by a scab, which will fall off 7-10 to days later. Daniel Ruiz-Tyson, this week we've been talking about your father... Before I wrap up, like many sons, you had a difficult relationship with your father, but your mother's death reconciled you. Am I right in saying that? I don't think we needed to be reconciled. I think uh, I think what happened simply brought us closer together. You were both fighting your respective guilt you felt over her death. You for not saving her, uh, your father for leaving her, and all the time the clock was running down fast on your own time together. Did you have a chance in that time together for it ever to be about you two rather than your mother? Probably not, no. But, you know, like I said earlier, he, he came good. Without him, I don't think I would have made it through those, uh, through those first two years. Okay, so did you ever try talking to him about his guilt? No, but maybe I should have. I can see now that the, the guilt and the sense that he needed to be there for us uh, for the first time really was... His undoing. There was one day we spent together just before I turned 18 that had an enormous impact on me to this day. Conscious we were spending less time together, you decided we ought to take a trip to central London, like the old days. I wore new shoes that were too small for me. Concerned my feet were too big, you forced my size 11 feet into size 10s when I turned 17. I could barely walk that day. We walked through St James's Park, where I briefly incurred your ire after I refused to cross a bridge full of birds being fed by tourists. From there, we walked across the Green Park, me struggling in my too-small-for-me shoes, and into a cafe you knew. I don't think I'd been into a proper cafe like that before. The noise of the coffee grinders, the smell of the coffee itself, the sight of people sitting down reading papers, looking calm, detached from the hustle and bustle of the city, made an immediate impression on me. We sat down... And what you said next, as we both overstirred our coffees, has always stayed with me. Life can be hard. 
This city can be hard. Everyone's in such a hurry. No one smiles, no one says hello. No one makes time for anything. Whenever you can, whenever you need to, you just stop what you're doing, step back from the die and make time for a coffee. If you need to think about stuff, you think. If you don't, then don't. But stop. Just stop. Make time. Breathe. It's through the nose, yeah? Always through the nose, Danny. With me, please, yeah. Okay. Again, again, through the nose, yeah, yeah. Through the nose, always through the nose, Danny. Have that coffee. I made that time, Dad. I make it every day. I found this place in South Lambeth Road a year before I lost you. That's where I stop and breathe, Dad. Albeit not through the nose. That final day searching for you, I really stepped things up, going to sundry A&E departments in South London and visiting your old haunts where I would approach strangers. Not an easy thing for a low-key guy like me to do and show them your befaunted picture. My search for you began slowly. I was not happy with you. Our most recent conversation had seen us have our biggest ever bust-up after you'd taken issue with my visits to Mum's grave tailing off. I felt that was unfair... It was getting harder for me to go there. I couldn't cope with the guilt. You knew that. And yet the moment I stopped going, you threw it in my face. I have had to live with not only the anger of that recollection, but of the guilt that it was our final ever conversation. That summer, I was in no rush to confirm that was the last time we ever talked. Eventually, as August gave way to September, the police told us that a body had been found some weeks earlier on Clapham Common. You had no idea on you. That's why it took us so long to find out what had happened. But you'd been dead since the day you left Mayflower. You were found on a bench by a man. Another jogger, perhaps. I don't know. I sometimes wonder whether this guy perhaps might have used his discovery of you as a, as a way of making himself appear intriguing to women, playing a, a dark and troubled soul haunted by the discovery of a man slumped on a bench in indecently high 1980s polyester and cotton athletic shorts with an elastic waistline and the notched side vent hems that exposed way too much thigh. For a long time, I couldn't stop thinking that you had stopped running that day because you knew something was very wrong and you'd sat yourself down. The mobile I had got you earlier in the summer so I could keep tabs on you easier and which could have saved your life, left behind at the bedsit. You must have been so afraid in those final moments, the last visual you ever saw, that of the common that you loved so much. Your funeral was attended by a large crowd. Not as many as mums, though, and I suspect half of the mourners only turned up to make sure you were actually dead after you'd spent the last 20-odd years predicting their demise. They all outlived you, Dad. I do remember leaving in the back of an open-topped white sports car, for which I apologise. It was quite inappropriate, but it was your cousin driving it, and really, before you have a go at me, you ought to start with why he thought it was okay to turn up in it, albeit on a warm late summer's day. I've never ever seen such a car at any other funeral. It was like he was turning up at some awards ceremony. A counsellor believed one of the reasons I ran into trouble was because I haven't been able to have this conversation with you and Mum. With all of you, that this wasn't necessarily a dialogue that would have taken place in my 20s, he said. It's only now that maybe I fully comprehend what has happened to me over the last decade and what happened to you guys. That's why I decided to write to you, to all of you. 
I think writing to mum will be the hardest. I mean you no disrespect by that, because I do miss you, Dad. I wasn't ready to lose you too. I don't forget what you did for me at the end. And for that, I love you even more. Danny. In a US talk show host was played by Alan Mitchell. The NHS website was played by Delia Ryan, with Daniel Ruiz Tyson as himself. The music is by Ignacio Lozano. The engineer is Daniel Ross. For more news on the letter, visit the blog theletterofficialblog.wordpress.com. 